Second Peter, um, and it is uh, chapter 2. We're picking up midway through verse 10. So I will be reading from halfway through verse 10, and I'm going to read through to verse 16, and then we'll pray, and then we'll study. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, and they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in uh, delivering your word to us. Lord, we pray that as I teach this morning, Lord, that it wouldn't be my words, Lord, or my thoughts or my ideas, but it would be your words, your thoughts, your, your truth contained in your word, communicated, and the illumination of your Holy Spirit shining your light upon your own word. Father, I am forever consciously reminded that my ideas are just that, mine. My thoughts are mine. They don't change. They don't transform. They don't bring salvation or light. But your words do. Your truth does. And so may I proclaim that this day. May you speak to us this day. And may you be glorified in our midst as we do. Amen. Amen. Okay. Okay, saints, let's dig in. Second Peter 2 verse 10b, as we say. When we split verses up, we tend to throw in A's and B's and sometimes even C's. And we are halfway through verse 10. The verse breakage is a little unusual here. And this, the new section seems to start midway through. Now, just for way of context, for those of you who are visiting or who haven't been here recently, just by way of context, the end of chapter 1, Peter was speaking about the utter reliability of the word of God. And in contrast to that, in chapter 2, he starts to deal with false teachers. These false teachers are peddlers of heresies. There are wrong ways of thinking that they promote. And the apostles, they don't do 
the teaching of myths. They don't do this midrashic, making it up as you go along, allegorizing and twisting scripture and filling in the gaps, but you know, through means of guesswork. No, they just simply teach the word of God. And it is astonishing that after Peter said that in, in, in chapter 1, that as we come into chapter 2 and we're dealing with the false teachers, he is just again and again and again pointing us to the Old Testament, isn't he? It's like he says in chapter 1, hey, you can trust the Bible, it's completely reliable. Now here's something I want to tell you about those you can't trust. And what does he do to make his point? He preaches the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. He's into the Garden of Eden, he's into the Nephilim, the Flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot, and so on and so forth as we go on this week. <coughs> so he is a model for us in using the scripture to teach the truth. So as we come now, midway through verse 10, we've spoken about the false teachers. Most pertinently and most recently, we've spoken in verses 4 through 10 about the fact that God is going to judge. God is going to judge. He, he's going to do that. It may be that you see ungodly people doing ungodly things. Maybe there are ungodly people in power making ungodly ju judgments. Just a random thought. Maybe. And, and people might think, well, hold on a second, why is God not doing anything? And Peter's going to address that in chapter 3. But what he told, tells us at the beginning of chapter 2 is that God will judge, that the judgment is going to come, it's going to happen, and that God can be relied upon to bring judgment to the ungodly, but also to preserve the righteous. And it is, it, is a, it is a consistent biblical theme, right back from the Old Testament, that we in this life may be going through life, and as we go through our lives, those of us who are faithful to God may be the ones who look like we're losing. We may be the ones who are imprisoned, who are mocked, who are slandered, who are persecuted, who are harmed, and sometimes even killed. But nonetheless... We're on the winning side. And it may seem as if those who are opposed to God are the ones who have the favor. The favor of the world, and, and in some people's eyes, the favor of God, because they're so blessed in so many material and physical ways. And this previous passage through to the first half of verse 10, as we saw last week, is this firm reminder to us that God is going to judge the ungodly, and he will preserve those who are righteous. We have got to stand firm because we know, we believe, we understand that God will keep his word. He can be trusted. And those of us who stand our ground and stand upon his word, that he will protect us. That does not mean that we won't die. Doesn't mean we won't get sick. Doesn't mean we won't suffer. Doesn't mean we won't be in trouble in various ways. Doesn't mean we won't suffer great loss. We may well do. But as Peter taught us in the first letter that he wrote, our treasures are not in this world, but in the world to come. That this present day suffering is something that we endure because of the hope that we have in the next life. That God will ultimately repay us. Not according to our works, thank goodness, because the blood of Christ will cover all of our sin. But for the works that remain, once our sin has been dealt with, 
that we will receive reward for. And so, with all that said, the godly will be preserved, the ungodly will be judged, and false teachers especially will be judged for the harm that they do. Now as we come to verse 10b, we are dealing with what they are like. We know what's going to happen to them. Now we need to see more about who they are and what they're like. Now, as we, as we go into this, I want to be very clear. You don't have to check every one of these boxes to be a false teacher. This is, this is the most extreme form. But at the same point, it may well be that some of us who aren't false teachers can hear some of these things and there might be elements of it that we might be prone to. So this in one sense is a warning to us all to steer away from these various sins. On the other hand, we need to be careful not to presume that everybody who teaches falsely is sinning in every one of these areas. This is a pretty thorough coverage. It's not one of the passages I look forward to teaching, quite honestly. It's a very complicated and difficult passage. But let me give you a bit of structure as we go in. The first few verses, and we'll break it down as we go through, deal with their arrogance. The middle section deals with their lust. And the last section deals with their greed. Now we've already said from previous weeks, Peter has made allusions to the Garden of Eden, the beginning of sin, the beginning of Satan saying, did God really say that people walking away from God's word, being drawn to false teaching, all of that began in the garden. And it began with Eve looking at the fruit and lusting after the fruit, seeing that it was desirous, and her wanting what the fruit promised her falsely, and having that greed... And the, the root of all of that, both from Adam and Eve and, of course, from Satan himself, is arrogance and pride. And really, when we're talking about sin, and when, particularly when we're talking about false teaching, arrogance, lust, and greed, these are, these are the three things that cover everything. They're always there in some way, shape, or form. Let's have a look. Let's go through the details. They are bold and willful. These are strong characters. False teachers have to be strong characters. False teachers don't turn around and say, well, you know, whatever, you don't have to believe it if you don't want to. They want you to believe. They are, de they are, they are dependent on you succumbing to their false doctrine. And so they are bold, literally darers, and their willfulness seems to speak of their self-sufficiency, their self-satisfaction. Their desire to satisfy themselves. And they are bold and willful. And they're bold and willful. And, and, and hear this, this is a tricky bit. They do not tremble. Because they're bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, we've dealt with a lot of weird and wacky angel, demon, Nephilim stuff in the last few weeks. Peter doesn't allow us to escape these things. He's going to deal with it again, actually, in chapter 3. But first of all, as we come to this tricky passage, notice here the word blaspheme. Notice that in verse 11 there's blasphemous, and notice in verse 12 there's blaspheming. This term blasphemy is repeated three times, three times in three verses. The idea of blasphemy here, and, and I think there's a danger, we Christianize all these words, and we need to be careful. Sometimes the word blasphemy is used by Christians referring to somebody who uses the name of God as a swear word. That's blasphemy. That's really not what the Bible's talking about, okay? 
I don't believe that when, when the uh, Ten Commandments were given uh, to Israel through Moses in Exodus 20, and then it was, they were told not to take the name of the Lord in vain, that there was a huge problem in Israel with people dropping hammers on their feet and going, Oh, Yahweh! And that wasn't a big problem at that time. The issue of taking the, name, the Lord's name in vain, it, the key to it is understanding that the name of God is his character, his attributes, his glory, his person, who he is. So if you were to say, well, God doesn't care if you sin or not. Now that's blasphemy right there. Because what you're doing is you're speaking against his character. You're attributing to him something that is, that is not what, who or what he is. That's blasphemy right there. That's taking God's name in vain. So with that in mind, this is the concept that three times repeated in this section is clearly the issue with their arrogance, that they are blasphemers. But notice that the, the ones they blaspheme, it's not God in a singular, not a glorious one. It's glorious ones. The expression glorious one seems both contextually and elsewhere, the way this phrase is used, to, re to refer to angelic beings. And yet, right next to this, in the next clause, there is the, the, the actual word angels. And the angels here seem to be contrasted to the glorious ones. So they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, but in contrast, angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So what are they doing? Well, they're blaspheming against glorious ones, angelic beings, who seem not to be the same as God's angels. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think here, and then we'll kind of go through it, and you can see that reason, that, that conclusion, that thesis kind of unpacking. But this is a difficult passage. But my best understanding of this in the context of 2 Peter, with all that we've dealt with, he's just referred to um, Genesis 6 and the sons of God and the Nephilim and all of that. So that's very much in his mind and the judgment of God in that. He talks about not blaspheming the glorious ones. And I believe the glorious ones are angelic beings, but not God's angels. He's talking about not blaspheming demons. That's a weird phrase. Hey, we, what did you hear in the sermon on Sunday? Well, the pastor said not to blaspheme demons. It's not kind of what you'd expect, really, is it? But when we understand that the blasphemy here in this context is a misrepresentation, what are they misrepresenting? Well, the fact is that these ones are glorious ones. Now, we tend to think of that as being a good thing, but we're simply talking here about their power and their might in context. There is, I believe, in many Christian circles, particularly those in which false teachers inhabit frequently, there is a tendency to be astonishingly blasé about Satan and his demons. Astonishingly. You know? And of course, in, in, the, in the real classic false teachers, this is seen most evidently in the we bind you, Satan, and all of this kind of nonsense that they do. Let's just be very clear. Satan is a ravenous lion. And he roams around seeking whom he may devour. Peter was very clear about this in his previous letter. Satan is powerful and mighty. A few weeks ago in our evening service, we dealt with Isaiah 27 and verse 1, which is a passage that links the Leviathan of Job 41 with the sea monster in Revelation 20, uh, 19, actually, I think it is, or 20. 
um, and shows that from beginning to end, the serpent, the leviathan, the sea monster, the dragon, is Satan. And when Job describes Leviathan, you need to go and read that passage. He speaks about him in terms that are, can you throw a harpoon at him? Is that going to pierce his skin? I don't think so. Can you do anything? Can you put a hook in his nose? Can you control him in any way, shape or form? Uh-uh-uh. He is completely and utterly out of your league. You have nothing on him at all. There's nothing that you can do. But the implication, of course, is that God does have a hook in his nose. That the Leviathan, that creature that caused so much harm to Job, that God had to give him permission. That God gave him parameters. God gave him limitations. That even that mighty creature of creation could do nothing other than sovereign God allowing him to do so. So we need to understand that we don't get to go around and say, I bind you, Satan. Here, just can you just stay there while I tie you up and tickle you or something? I mean, it's just ridiculous. This is Leviathan, breathing fire from his mouth. But the God that we worship has him completely under control. He will defeat him and he will crush him. And this creature, this monster, this, this evil can do nothing apart from God's permissive will. And that is whom we place our trust. Why is it that false teachers don't have respect, and I'm using that word in the contextual sense, in the sense of knowing the might and knowing the power, why do they not respect the demonic realm? Because they're completely oblivious to how they are serving the demonic realm. When you come to the New Testament letters to the churches, the realm of demons is never, never, not once, not a single time seen in any form of exorcism or demons being within people or anything like that. That every time that demonic uh, beings are mentioned in the letters to the churches, it is in the context of false doctrine and false teaching. That's how they use people. These, these, these... These crazy, mad, false teachers are there saying, I bind you, Satan, I bind you, and all of this kind of nonsense. And they are the ones being bound by Satan. They have no understanding of the enemy that they face, and in their ignorance they are being controlled. That's what's going on here. And in contrast to that bold, willful arrogance, even angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now there's two possibilities here. The blasphemous judgment that the angels don't make could be a judgment against the false teachers, and it could be a judgment against the fallen angels. Could be either. Commentators disagree. But either way, the angels aren't there saying, Woe to you, false teacher, or woe to you, demon. Why? Because they bow before the sovereignty and might and power of our holy God, who will make all things right, place all things under the feet of Jesus Christ himself, so that every power, every authority, and every dominion will be under him. And so they let God deal with it in his time, which is where we're going in 2 Peter 3. So, 
The angels are not arrogant. They don't take God's position. Rather, they allow God to do his own judgment. But not the false teachers. Oh, no, no. They're going to make judgments. And they are fond, the worst of the false teachers, they're fond of judgments. Both angelic beings, human beings, and everything. They are bold and willful and arrogant. But these, verse 12, like irrational animals. Now let's understand this. And there's so many difficult phrases in this passage today. I'm going to try and go through them. I don't want to spend forever on these passages. I want to get to verse 16, so we'll have to do them a little quicker than I might like. But irrational animals is simply this. Listen, listen. My, my dog Buddy, if you've been to my house and you met Buddy, Buddy's a, I love Buddy, he's adorable. I'm a dog person and I, and I just adore my dog, okay? He's a really calm dog. I mean, he's just, he spends most of the day just kind of lying around, wants you to tickle his belly. If he wants to go out, he wants a bit of food, he'll come and let you know, and he's just lovely. But when you ring that doorbell, you might as well think that we've got a monster behind the door. I mean, when that doorbell goes, it's, he just, boom, he just explodes. And, and then we open the door and you come in the house and he's just completely bonkers, as we would say in England. He's just, he's completely wild. He is so excited that you have come to see him, because of course that's why you're there. And he's so excited. About 30 seconds later, it's as if you never came. He's just kind of, dead. that's it, he's done. He, he's done his bit, he's done. And he, when he hears that doorbell, boom, he goes. Because he's an animal, and it's instinctive. And if I was a better owner, I might have trained him so that his instincts were a bit more controlled. But he is, he is instinctive. When they're hungry, they eat. When, when the, the female dog is on heat, they respond. When they, when they, need to, when they see a squirrel, they're boom, you know. This is what they do. They're animals, and they are irrational. That doesn't mean that they're hard to understand. They're very easy to understand. It means they don't think. Buddy does not go, ah, there's the doorbell. Now, my dad did say that somebody was coming around today. I, am, uh, I know who that is. I've seen them lots of times before. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit really calmly, because there's no need to get excited, because it's, it's just somebody who I know. There's no thinking. There's no, I better not chase after that squirrel, because there's busy road and there's cars on the road. There's just squirrel, boom. That's it. There's no rationality. There's no thinking. There's no processing. They are controlled by their instincts and their emotions. That, that is the comparison with the false teachers. False teachers will give you reasons, they'll give you ideas, they'll give you arguments, but they are vacuous in their thinking. They do what appeals to them and they do what makes sense to them. And I do not recommend it, but if any of you ever watch any of the nonsense that comes out of that Bethel church in Reading, it is almost the most extreme example of people just saying, oh, well, that, that kind of makes sense to me. Well, we, we committed that error and that error and that error and that error, so this even more bizarre error seems perfectly logical to us. Let's just go there. No thinking. Completely irrational. That's what these false teachers are like. They just simply do what instinctively seems right. Hence, creatures of instinct. The next phrase is that they are born to be caught and destroyed. 
Now, some people in the, uh, the kind of the strict Calvinist wing of the church, those of you who are regulars know that I associate with them, but they don't like to associate with me. I'm a kind of soft Calvinist on these kind of issues. Would, would see in this verse a, a degree of what some call double predestination, that they were born for the very purpose of being destroyed. I don't see that, to be quite honest with you. I, um, I do believe in election, but, and I know that there are logical implications, but I don't follow those logical implications. I simply let the Bible speak for itself. I do believe here that the point is being made is that when animals don't think, there is a logical outworking of that. There is, the, you know, the, the dog sees a squirrel and he runs and he goes after the squirrel and that's what he's going to do and there's going to be consequences. If you have someone who doesn't think and they just go by the, the instinct, there's going to be consequences. And the consequences of false teachers teaching falsely going according to their instincts, is that what is going to happen is that they are ultimately going to be people who are going to be caught and destroyed, just like an animal would be. How can you hunt animals? How do people who, I'm not a hunter myself, but I know other people here are, and those who hunt animals are successful because they know what those animals are going to do. They know their instincts, they know what they do. They're not going to say, oh look, there's a hunter with a gun, I'm going to do this. They don't do that, they're irrational. So, so you, can, you can think for them, what they're going to do, and that's how you do them. And therefore, because these, these, these teachers are creatures of instinct, their only destiny is one of being caught and destroyed. Who catches them and who destroys them? That's a really good question. I think contextually here, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, this is not the mainstream view, I think that the catching and destroying is being done by the glorious ones they blaspheme. I think that's the context of the passage. And that's why I don't see this as a sort of salvation and election kind of issue here. I think what's going on here is this. That they disregard the might and power of the glorious ones. They disregard how powerful demons are. And so they are people like animals who are, who are born and in their ignorance they just go out and do what animals do. And they are easy prey. So these false teachers are easy prey to the demons that they think they are in control of and that they blaspheme against. That's my understanding. And again, it's a difficult passage. But it's again, it's, it's, it's blasphemy, blasphemous judgment, and now blaspheming about mat matters of which they are ignorant. And I hope that as this text develops, you see, see the context expand. You see why I'm coming to the conclusions I'm coming to. That they're just ignorant. They have no understanding of the glorious ones. That's why they blaspheme them. They have no understanding of their power. That's why they are victims to being caught and destroyed. That's why they become the prey of the ones that they think they have under control. They are ignorant. They are ignorant of the enemy. They are ignorant of his ways. And so, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, they will be destroyed in their destruction. And then as we move into verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. There's parallel here. They suffer wrong, they suffer harm, because they do what's harmful. They do wrong, st they, the, wrong stuff is done to them, wrong stuff is done to them. They, they suffer because of the wrong that they do. In the same way, I think the implication in the previous section is that they are going to be destroyed in their destruction. That's not a repetition. That's not saying, 
they're being destroyed, they're being destroyed, what it's saying is they're going to be destroyed by the very thing that they do which destroys others. Their destructive teaching is what results in their destruction. You know, take an obvious example. With the health, wealth and prosperity preachers, there they are chasing money, chasing money, chasing money, preaching lies, preaching lies, preaching lies, your best life now, your king's kids, you're worthy of all of this, and all of this kind of stuff. And, and the, what's the result of it? The result of it, if their eyes are on the world, they have a false gospel, and what's going to happen ultimately is that they are going to be destroyed because their own greed will distract them from the glorious truth of the gospel. They've neglected the gospel, they've not understood the gospel, and it will be their very destruction that their preaching is sending them to hell. That's the reality of it. And so, this is not a nice picture that is painted of their arrogance. Now, halfway through verse 13, we shift from their arrogance to their lust. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. And then finally, um, while they feast with you. Now, the word here, revel, is repeated twice. Actually, one time it's a noun and the other time it's a verb. But it's essentially the same word. And the reveling and the feasts are linked together. The idea is that they are doing wild cavorting parties. That's not to say that it's like a tea party, you know, little pinky finger out and that kind of party. But, you know, the wild kind of party. The point that they're making here, the point that Peter's making here, is they count it a pleasure, they consider it a pleasure to do this kind of cavorting in the daytime. If somebody's going to have a wild party with, with you know, I'll be careful what I say with all the young ears, but you know, wild cavorting and you know, all sorts of things that go on, typically those things happen at night in the darkness. People do deeds of darkness in darkness, it's how things are done. When it's saying here they do it in the daytime, it's not simply talking about what time they set their alarm on or put the invite out for their parties. It's talking about their lack of shame and how they're completely open about what they do. So this isn't talking about hidden sin. And I think the danger here is though the word adultery is used in the next verse, they have eyes full of adultery. Adultery is used here as imagery. Now, that isn't to say that false teachers don't commit sexual sin. Many of them do, probably far more than we know. And that isn't to say that every person who's a leader who falls into sexual sin is a false teacher. Many good teachers have fallen that way as well. But this is talking about lust in the broader sense, like we've already seen earlier in this chapter. It's talking about that Eve looking at that fruit and seeing that it was desirous to the eye. You know, it was, I want this, it looks good. And this is them being openly, not sexually loose, though that may inc be included, but what it's saying is that they are very open about they do what they want and what feels good is what they do. That they are those who are seeking their own satisfaction and their own pleasure. That's what's going on here. So they do this openly, willingly in the daytime. This is, I was saying to you already, you can go on YouTube and you can see some of the worst form of biblical teaching 
that you could ever see. It's not biblical teaching, of course, at all. You can see people doing wild and wacky things, making animal noises, shaking, screaming, and people attributing it to the Holy Spirit. You can hear people teaching a false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. And I say on YouTube, because of course I presume that none of you have TBN, because you don't watch that rubbish, but you can look it up on YouTube. And you can see this stuff. And do you know what? They, they own television networks to promote this stuff. They have schools to promote this stuff. Because people willingly want to come. Nobody, nobody in these worlds are saying, hey, you know what? Meet me round the back of the building at midnight and I'll slip you a bit of health, wealth and prosperity. I've I got a secret tape. Don't show it to anyone. I, I, I just... Shh, do it behind the scenes. They've got a TV network doing it. That's what it means to revel in daytime. Look at us pursuing our greed. Look at us pursuing our desires. Look at us just doing whatever is instinctive and, and, and whatever we want to do without any you know, rational thinking or, or, or submitting to scripture. Just look at us do it. There is no shame. And so there is this reveling and feasting and they are blots and they are blemishes because they revel in their deceptions. Notice here, there's a reveling. At the, at, at, initially, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Then there's reveling in their deceptions. And in the middle of that little section is the emphasis, the blots and the blemishes. That they are blots and blemishes. They cause harm by their deceptions. They create impurity while they feast with you. The implication is this. That blemish, that blot, that unholiness spreads to those who listen to them, those who engage with them, those who hang out with them. They are not of us. We have no place. I, I don't know why this happens, but it does. But I again and again in this country come across Christians, worse in my homeland, I should hasten to add, come across Christians who like, you know, I listen to this sound teacher, I listen to that sound teacher, and then they'll listen to, they'll watch a bit of TBN on the side. They'll, they'll, they'll watch, if, you know, this, oh, I know, he's not very, I don't like, but you know, I listen to him occasionally. Why? Do not feast with him. Do not fellowship with him. Do not listen to their lies, their deceptions, because you will become blemished. You will be tarnished. Do not think that you are above it. Do not think that you are somehow going to listen to false teaching and you'll be okay. That is not the case. If this chapter of scripture teaches anything, it's that we must be ruthless with false teaching. We must not tolerate it. We must not accommodate it. We must not say it's okay to have a little bit of it on the side. You know? It's not. And so... Their eyes are full of adultery. They want to cheat on God. They want to have this impurity in their lives. And they are insatiable for sin. And they entice unsteady souls. Is your soul steady? Are you someone who's prone to be dragged along? Are you one of these people that say, Oh, well, I love the word of God, but you know what? Prophet so-and-so says this and that. And Well, we can't disregard everything. We mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And all of these little phrases and expressions that people use to justify, justify listening to false doctrine. They are enticing your soul. Be steady. Be firm. Stand firm. Do not tolerate it. You will never be unaffected if you listen to that dross. 
And so that is their lust. They get what they want and they get other people to, they say, hey, you can have what you want too. Does that sound familiar? That's in the garden. Hey, you'll be like God if you eat this. And that's what leads us then on quite naturally to greed. They have their hearts trained in greed. Teachers are supposed to be trained in the word of God. Teachers are supposed to be trained to know what God says and to communicate what God says. What are they trained in? Greed. I have to tell you this. I really admire the health, wealth and prosperity gospel teachers. I really admire them. In this, the methodologies they have to get money out of people is just astonishing. Half of them, quite frankly, are only doing it in churches and only use the name of Jesus because if they didn't, then they would be a motivational speaker and they'd have to pay tax on their income. They are clever. You know? Oh, you, 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 your, your spouse is dying of cancer? You need to really sow a seed of faith and, and make a bigger donation just to really show God. It's despicable, but it's really clever. They are trained in greed. They know how to gather greed, how to gather what they want. And so, do they get what they want? No, they're cursed. They are accursed children. The children here does not refer to them being saved. That's been very clear from the beginning of the chapter. The children here links to the word trained. Remember in, in, in the Proverbs about training up a child in the way that they will go? Training and children go hand in hand, right? And they have been trained, not in the ways of the Lord, they've been trained in greed. And as a result, they, those children who've been trained that way, are cursed. That's the fruit. Do not look at these guys and their private jets. Do not look at them and, and their bank accounts and think that that's the fruit of their ministry. They are cursed. That is not the blessing of God upon them. That is curse. You would not want to be them for anything in this world. I don't care how broke you are. I don't care how much you're suffering. You would not want to swap places. They are cursed by God. Oh, that we would be impoverished and suffer and be slandered and die in pain and poverty and be welcomed into heaven by God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Then leave behind an astonishing estate and come before God accursed and in our sin. That is what their greed has gathered for them. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. The implication here is, is that these people, they, again, I don't think they're saved. I don't think they were saved and have wandered off. I don't think this person can lead their salvation. But I think the implication is, is that they know something of God and they've gone away from that. They know something of God and they've gone away. Do you know that most false teachers will use a Bible every time they speak? They use Bibles. I mean, sure, they use them in the same way that divers use springboards, you know. It's like, here's a Bible verse, boing, woo, and off they go, and they're miles away from the springboard and never come near it again. But they have them. I mean, how else do they butcher the text unless they use one? 
And they do, they butcher it. They do this, not exegesis, taking out X from the text, what it says. They do eisegesis, where they put their greed and their lust into the text to say what they want to say. And in their arrogance, they do the narcegesis, where they put themselves into the Bible, and the Bible revolves around them. But they use the Bible. But they have forsaken its ways. They've gone astray. Which way have they gone if they haven't gone the way of God? They've gone the way of Balaam, son of Beor. Now, I haven't got time to turn there, but it's Numbers 22. Balaam is very famous. Um, <coughs> he is someone who I can relate to because he was rebuked by his own dumb ass. Not every sermon I get to say that, but there you go. He... Uh, the famous story is that Balaam, and not a lot of people know a lot about Balaam, but Balaam was a, 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 a guy who had some sort of spiritual ability. He, was, he had an ability. Basically, Balaam, if you hired him and he blessed someone, they were blessed, and if you hired him and they cursed someone, they were cursed. There's actually some kind of power that is contained within. And so Balaam was hired to curse Israel. And every time he opened his mouth, the Spirit of God came upon him and he blessed Israel. To the point that his own donkey, well, let's have a look at what the text here says. He was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. That, that's a great expression, isn't it? That a donkey who obviously can't speak somehow spoke with a human voice to say to him, why do you keep doing this when you're clearly not being allowed by God to do this? You're trying to curse Israel. God's not going to let you curse Israel. He's only going to let you bless Israel and yet you keep doing it. Well, what is your problem here? Rebuked by a donkey. Now I want you to see what this passage has done in this description of the false teachers. We're going to talk more about them next time but this section comes to an end with this verse. In fact, my favorite bit of their description is what's coming up next week. But look at how this has gone. It begins with their arrogance, bold and willful. And it ends with a great man with great power and great respect being humiliated by his donkey. Nebuchadnezzar, you must bow before my image, ends up bowing on the grass and eating it like a cow when God takes away his sanity and humbles him. Balaam was humbled by his donkey. What is the implication here? These leaders, these teachers, these heretics, they will be humbled. And what's the message of Peter to those to whom he writes? Do not follow them in any way, shape or form. Judgment is theirs. They are not of us. There is no benefit to them. There is no blessing upon them. They are cursed children and they will ultimately get rebuked by a donkey. The donkey restrained the prophet's madness. These people, if I may use my quaint English idioms again, are completely bonkers. They are out of control. They are wild. They do whatever they want. They manipulate. And there is such wickedness in false teaching. What's the remedy? 
Should we end with something good rather than end with the bad stuff? What's the remedy? The remedy is this. You trust the Bible. You just trust it. You stand on it. You don't twist it. You don't manipulate it. You don't fill in the gaps. You don't adjust it to what you think God should do or what you think God is capable of. You don't make yourself God by you declaring what God can and can't do. You come before the Bible and you bow before it and say, God, speak. And you trust it. You trust it when scientists say you're wrong. You trust it when social commentators say you're wrong. You trust it when the whole world thinks you're wrong. You trust it because God speaks through his word. And we may be slandered, we may be mocked, but we will never be ashamed. And we stand under the blessing of God, not the curse that these men are under. Be a person of the word. Make a decision again this day to trust it more than everything, more than anything else. Let it guide you and let it speak. Don't, don't use it. Don't come to the Bible and say, well, it could mean this and it could mean that. It could mean anything if you want it to mean and whatever you want it to mean, it could mean. What did the author intend for it to mean? What does it mean in context? Even if it's not what you want it to mean. And when you see what it says, bow. Bow. There's too much at stake, folks. There are people who are easily enticed. There are those who are being led astray. And we are at a time right now where people need the word of God as much as ever before. Let us stand upon it. Let us stand firm. And let us be well, well away from these false teachers. Because we are people of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And that is indeed my prayer today. That you would be our inoculation against false doctrine. Because we are people who know your word. Not just a verse here and there. Not just the odd memory verse, but we know your truth. We understand it. We see it unpacking through generations, through centuries, through millennia. As you progressively reveal your word, consistent and faithful to keep it. Never needing to be adjusted or adapted. But speaking clearly that we might hear and that we might bow. May we come to your word with a hermeneutic of surrender. Willing to put aside our desires. Willing to put aside the things we crave, the things we want. Put aside our own pride. And to bow before you. May your word guide our lives. From this day forth we pray. And may you be glorified as we do so. Amen.